person is, but I guarantee you know the work he's done. He's worked with such artists as Little Kim, Will Smith, Notorious B.I.G., rest in peace, Michael Jackson, rest in peace, Anthony Hamilton, Beyonce, and so many more. He's a recording artist, he's a recording producer, and he's still in the game hitting out that great music. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, and his maiden voice to the 950 Lounge, the super talented Andreo Fanatic Herb. What's going on, brother? How you doing, man? Oh, man, that was quite an intro there, man. It's what I do, baby. It's what I don't do. Don't ask him to repeat it. He, he Don't ask him to repeat it. It's only a one shot. Sometimes, sometimes I forget that, you know, I put that much work in. That's crazy, man. Nah, well, again, man, it's a pleasure to have you today. I mean, obviously, big shout to my man, Oren, for making this happen. Um, when he brought it to me, he was like, oh, you know who Fanatic is? I said, you know who I know who Fanatic is? What? So I was up in the club in Bentleys and... Tipped into you from New York, you know what I'm talking about to a global audience. Wow. But wow. it's a pleasure wow. to have yeah. you on. <laughs> the heyday of New York radio, the New York music scene. Like if you happen to be around in the nineties and early two thousand and experiencing the music scene in New York, it was magic, man. So many crews, so many production companies, Murder Inc., Rockefeller, Bad Boy. Everybody was doing it, and um, it was just quite a scene, man. New York has never been the same since then. The golden age, I call it, uh, uh, of mm-hmm. the game. But yeah. you started out, you know, in the South, you know, Green- yes. Tobacco Road, Greensboro yeah. to be exact, man. Talk about growing up in Greensville, North Carolina. Greensboro. Well, Greensboro. Greensboro, was, my um, bad, brother. Very, very I mean, small me out in the Cali. Yeah, yeah. Very, very. <laughs> but talk about growing up nah, in North um, Carolina. Well, the thing about it is, uh, in Greensboro, it was, uh, hip hop was just coming on the scene. Um, uh, rap was just coming on the scene and I got exposed to it and it changed my life. I met a guy by the name of Mixmaster D, who was a DJ at the time. And he would, every Friday, we'd go to the record store and we'd buy records. We just bought the labels at that time. We would buy, if we saw profile records, we would buy it. If we saw Def Jam, we would buy it. And it was just uh, really being exposed to hip-hop, LL Cool J, Rick Rubin, all these different um, producers, Mantronics, all these different producers and uh, hip-hop artists very early on, Run DMC. 
and just being blown away at what you guys were creating in New York City. So it was like uh, a whole nother world just experiencing it through the music and seeing the photos and write on magazine and all this stuff. So we were watching it from the outside, but we started creating it in Greensboro and started emulating what you guys were doing in New York City. So um, it was very few people at that time that were doing it. We were a small group in the area that were doing it. We were getting our songs on the radio, but uh, Greensboro hadn't really caught on to hip hop. Matter of fact, the first Fresh Fest came through Greensboro with Houdini, Run DMC, Jermaine Dupree was there. All it was it was UTFO. So it was uh it was a great time to like really be at the at the be, the beginning stages of of hip hop and experiencing it in Greensboro. Right. Mm-hmm. So when now, you think, I, now, go I, got, I got a real quick question for you, just to be a quick one. Now when you was in Greensboro, did you have any family members up north that you requested for them to send you any mixtapes? Yes, always. Uh, actually, the DJ I was just talking about, Mixmaster D, had a cousin in New York, and he would send down WBLS, Red Alert tapes, uh, that that infamous Run DMC at the Apollo before that Raising uh, Hell album came out. Yeah, It just circulated through our school. People recorded it, sent it down. So we were getting the mixtapes. We were getting the Hank Love mixtapes. We were getting all of this hip-hop. Like in its early, early stages where there were a million independent labels and they were always doing something fresh and innovative and everybody sounded different. So, which is really, really weird when a, uh, New York compared to, you know, the United States right. was a small region where everybody in different boroughs were, were creating their own brand of hip hop. BDP didn't sound anything like De La Soul. So it was getting a whole different thing. Flavor unit was different. Everybody was different and what they were creating. And so you were getting this smorgasbord of hip hop and people just expressing it in so many different ways. So it was really creative time to, to be involved in, in hip hop. Well, back, back then in, in the eighties and the nineties, I mean, everybody represented their barrel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, boogie down productions was from the Bronx. Um, uh, uh, Harlem, you know, had had their people, and, and you know, Queens, you know, the battle with um, with, with um, with, what was it, oh, Queensbridge projects and all that. Yeah. I think it was, was the Juice Crew, wasn't it? Yeah, was that the yeah, yeah. 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 battle, and everybody had every nobody wanted to be involved saying, oh, I sound like a rapper from Queens. I sound like a rapper from Brooklyn. You wanted right. to sound like your own, but you represented where you was from, you know, yeah. represented hard. Mm-hmm. Let me let me yeah. take you back, Fanatic. Obviously, you know, we've grown up in North Carolina, and I think of the South, right? We, Me and Rodeo, as you know, as brothers, we talked about it already. But um, the South, when I think about artists, right, when I think about Jodeci and all these other artists that come from the South, it always seems to start in the church, right? Was that kind of your influence starting out growing up in Greensboro? Like, hey, you know, that music influence, did it come from a, a, a spiritual aspect that then metamorphed to what it became? No, I wish because the church that I was in, we had like the chancellor choir. So it was like, damn near like uh, yeah. But I got exposed to that much later on and really understood the influence of the church on all of the music that was coming out because you know, during that 90s period, all the big producers were coming from the church. Rodney Jerkins came from the church. Teddy Riley came from the church. Devontae came from the church. Malik Pendleton came from the church. All these 
different producers and singers were coming from the church. And it affected the music tremendously because you had the streets bringing the hip-hop beats there, but then you had the core progressions of all these people that grew up in the church and were playing. And so when you mix that together, it created something that we had never seen before. And vocally, all these guys could really sing. You know, Brandy could sing. uh, Mary J could sing. Jodeci could sing. All these different singers were on. So when you're fusing those beats from the street, those chord progressions from the church, and then those vocals, we created something that had never been seen before. And a lot of them were coming from the South because they were deep in the church. And, like, you know, in the South, you would go to church all day. So you would be in there from like eight in the morning at Bible school and you would eat after church and then go to church again. So when you're spending that much time in the church, a lot of people just started picking up instruments and playing in there, playing and singing in the choir. Because if you're going to be in church all day, you might have to do music, you know. And so a lot of people uh, got their chops in the church, you know, working with those choir directors and just learning, you know, gospel music and just, you know, doing it in the streets afterwards with, like, R&B and hip-hop. We must have went to the same church. We must have went to the same church, because we was in church from 8 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, and got to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning on Sunday to be in church at 11 o'clock. We barely made school on time on Monday. (laughs) Definitely. It was definitely, if you could go to the club, you could go to the church. And it even (laughs) got got really critical when... uh, Football would come on at one o'clock, and you still be. In we the didn't church know what football was. We didn't know what football was. Uh, we, 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 we grew up in a time where our mother couldn't walk on weekdays because her leg hurt. But when she got to church on the weekend, she, you know, looking like James yeah, Brown. Like so I, 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 I told you, it goes definitely, definitely. <laughs> so going back again, you and mm. you and your partner getting mm. these sounds, this mm. music stuff, and eventually you decide, hey, you know what? We're gonna take this. We're gonna take this thing up north. Talk about that. That okay. migration to New York City. Well, well, the thing about it is, we were one of the first groups to get our records played on New York radio coming from the South. Because before that, you had to like basically be from New York to get your records played on there. They wouldn't play anything outside of the tri-state area. But what happened is Dana Dane, Clark Kent, uh, Big Daddy Kane, Biz who was my mentor, they all would come down south and do shows down south. So they would put their singles out, and then they'd get on the road and come down south. Because, you know, when you come down south, there are a million towns, little towns, like right next to each other. So you could come down there for two, three weeks and just hit every single little town and do shows. So we built a rapport with those guys. We got acclimated to how they were doing music. Biz was teaching me how to produce records how to uh, uh, find and dig for records and sample records and cue them up in arrangements. So he was a big influence on me very early on on how to produce records. And from there, we started taking trips to New York City. And then we would be on the Hank Love DNA show. We would be on Marley Maul's In Control show. We did the theme song for Red Alert show. So we had a partner by the name of Roland Jones who was from New York. And so he grew up with all these people. So he would bring us up there and we would mingle and mix with all these people and meet these people. And that's how we kind of got acclimated to like, you actually can just get in the car, drive to New York City and get on, get involved with the hip hop scene, whether it be the clubs or getting in the studio. So later on, we started doing that. Like we would have these jobs. I call them like pie jobs where you could quit at in an instant. So it'd be like, you might be delivering pizzas for Domino's 
my and, and you would just quit because you would go to New York City and get an opportunity. I was actually a desk clerk at Super 8, and I worked third shift. So I would work Monday at 11 o'clock through Thursday. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we'd be on the road driving to New York City and just trying to get back to work by 11 o'clock on Monday night. So when you're in New York City on the weekend, you got like one or two business days where they're in the offices, and then you got the weekends when they're in the club. So we were able to network and meet people, and so that's why we that's how we ran into uh, Puffy, and that's how we ran into Biggie and Un and all these different people, and that's how we just got acclimated to coming back and forth to New York City and believing that we could be on the scene. And if you hang around long enough, the Hit Factory was popping at the time on 44th Street. So I want, you I want up, you to hold that. I okay, want you to right, hold right, that because right, that that was a major pivot in your professional life. I'm going to take a quick yeah. break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the Hit Factory. We're going to talk about those names, the Diddies okay. and the B.I.G.s and the Uns you yes. just mentioned, and we'll get it cracking. We got mm-hmm. the super producer, Fanatic, in the building. It's Nafi Lounge. Where else you want to be? I'm tryna bring this to focus What's good so we pull up, pull up and lean Super, super wet on my foot, clean And put that smell that you know I be Ain't this the best you ever seen When you're ready telling me I'm saying Ooh, From here it can only get better So, mm-hmm. Girl, you know that there ain't no better So, is that remedy? It be you and me, energy, we can get this right Be the centerpiece, legacy Why you over there, I know you're feeling me I know you're feeling me Say, come on, come on, come on, come on over And you the realest, realest Let me be a soldier Yeah, yeah, yeah There ain't nothing to explain I got the gang up in the place, we're getting way So, come on, come on, come on, come on over you know you're bound to be involved One that real man to give you control So push it back, do your thing, get low Then break it down, take your time, let it go You know you're bound to be involved One that real man to give you control So let it be no conversation And let there be no hesitation I just wanna show you I say come on, come on, come on, come on over And you the realest, realest Let me be a soldier I'll go the gang up in the place we're getting way so come on, come on, come on, come on over. Come on over. Yeah, so you wanna bust a wine for man. Your physique comes so into that. I've been scrolling through your Instagram. See me and you later, yeah, that's the plan. Tell your girls so we pull up, pull up and lean. Super, super wet, I'm off for oh clean. And bum that smell that you know how it be. And it's the best you ever seen. Will you really tell me? You say, come on, come on, come on, come on over. And you the realest, realest. Let me be a soldier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There ain't nothing to explain. I got the gang up in the place we're getting way. So come on, come on, come on, come on over. Come on, 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 come on,
This is Royal, and you listen to the best team on radio, 950 Lounge. We're back on the ride, 950 Lounge, still joined by producer Fanatic. Um, and we, we took our break. We were talking about, again, the hit factory. Now, again, mm. for, for wherever you might be listening to this show, the hit factory might mean different things to different people. But nevertheless, it's a legendary recording studio in New York that has a, a place in this hip-hop game. Talk about that night fanatic okay. when you was in the studio and you had the encounter with at that time puffy and big yeah. well the thing about it is the hip factory was the central location that if you were anybody you were recording in the hip factory so you would constantly walk down 44th street just to see you know who's out front when you see the suvs lined up out front you know who's who was in that studio recording and so we would just camp out in the lobby we would camp out in front of the building, hoping that we could see somebody that we knew. A guy by the name of Sincere Thompson knew Un Rivera, you know, and so he told me, when you see Un, just tell him my name, tell him how you want to play some music for him, and he'll let you uh, come up. So we had been, uh, my partner Eli Davis and I had been uh, driving back and forth, and we were staying with Sincere and he was uh, he worked for Island Records at the time. And so he was always on the scene. So what we did is we, we parked in front of the hip factory one day and we and Un pulls up. Biggie jumps out. They're going upstairs. I tell him Sincere's knows knows uh, knows you told me to holler at you. Next thing you know, he said, come on upstairs. So we go upstairs and it's uh, they're working on Little Kim's out. So. I'm just playing beats for him. At the time, I had my beats on the CD, so I could just go through them. And I had, like, so many tracks. I had, like, probably, like, 50, 50 tracks. So I'm in there just playing tracks for him, jumping from one to the next. He's not saying anything. It's quiet. They back there rolling the weed, and I'm just playing playing beats. <laughs> so by the time I get to the number 30, they haven't said anything. So I figured, like, oh, maybe they're just not feeling the music. You're playing beat after beat yeah. after beat yes. after and, and they just, just sitting there in the room. rolling the fatty. Yeah, they, yeah. they got to get their minds right. Right. And so it's just silence in the room. And so finally, when I get to, like, number 30, I'm like, well, it's time to shut this down. So I get up and I tell them, um, yo, I really appreciate it, um, the opportunity and everything. And so as I'm getting ready to walk out the door, Big says, play number 13 again, 17, mm-hmm. 8, 6, 5. Like, he names, like, 12 different tracks. So he was writing down the numbers the whole time, and I didn't know that. And the next thing you know, I'm in the studio with Big E for the next uh, week just working on beats and songs for Little Kim, for Little C's, and that's how I landed the Crush On You record. And, and now these um, guys were paying you cash. So yeah, it was. Yeah. So at this time, again, this is for, for the younger audience, boys and girls, this was a situation where, hey, it was cash money. Hey, yeah. I'm in the studio with these guys. I'm... I don't have to worry about getting back to the to the to the ready mart or wherever he was working at on Monday. Super <laughs> money for producing. Um, yeah, yeah, there was everything was under the table. He was just hitting me off with with dough, and it was just uh, we were just in there every day. Uh, Mace was writing, Cameron was writing, Little C was there, Biggie was there, Un was there, and so that was like my first introduction of just like working with a superstar of that magnitude with Biggie. And just seeing how um, 
how how intelligent he was about putting records together. And I'm I'm assuming a lot of that came from his time of working with Puff at that time. When you're working at working with Puffy, he's teaching you how to make records. So Biggie knew all the popular records, how to put the right choruses on there and the arrangements and things like that. So and that was my thing. I was sampling a lot of popular loops at that time. Because growing up in New North Carolina, we had a really rich tradition with uh, black radio down there. So I knew all of those records. I knew so many records that were popping in New York that, you know, weren't big in the South, but the DJs down there were from New York. So they played a lot of those records. Mm-hmm. No doubt. So I knew a lot of popular loops. So when I was sampling them on the SP 1200 and playing them for big, he knew all of those records. So he picked some of those records. And I think I went to Un's house one day and I saw uh, a rack with dats on there. And there were probably about 15 songs that were for Little Kim that I had done um, uh, with them with my production. All of them were like Fanatic and Little Kim. And it was just like a sea of, of songs. So it's a right. bunch of material that never even came out that they worked on. Right. Ed, you want to jump in? Yes, I wanted to ask, um, when you was doing, cause like, I know like how it is, because I used to always do a lot of sampling and DJing mm-hmm. myself. The one thing I want to know, what genres of of records and what era records did you really um, concentrate on getting music from that had some good good loops? So, so the thing about it is I went to an all-white school for the first nine years of my life, right? So I'm the only black kid in the class, but they're turning me on to... Paul McCartney, Led Zeppelin, um, like all of these, all of the Eagles, all these rock acts, classic rock acts, they're turning me on to at school, right? And then when I come home, I'm listening to soul and R&B. So uh, early on, I knew to get a lot of the rock records and sample those rock records that a lot of people didn't know about. And then we went through the transition of when the James Brown thing hit, I would look at who's playing on those records because, in James Brown band, he had like a, a, a all-star team playing on all those records. So once I found out Maceo was on there, once I found out Bootsy was on there, all these different people were in the band, I would go and find their solo records. So I knew James Brown was producing them. I knew they were influenced by James Brown. So I knew that, you know, the product was going to be good. And usually when you buy a Polydor or a King record with James Brown on it, it was going to be something good on it. And he, he like put out so many records at one time. So I went through that period. And then the jazz period hit when Tribe Called Quest were really into the jazz stuff. And so I would do the same thing because there was a jazz label by the name of CTI. Yeah. And they would have like Bob James playing on the record with um, all of these other superstar jazz musicians. They all would collaborate. So you would go get their album. So I really got heavily into jazz. And so... That happened. And then, of course, you know, R&B was really big in the South. And so I had like a really uh, diverse uh, uh, record collection. I had over probably 20,000 records that I had collected because they would have these record stores down South that you could go in the dollar bin and just buy all these records. So every Saturday I was digging for records and just finding all kinds of jewels, you know. And for the youngins who don't know, this is not on a file. This is actually heavy. Yeah material yeah. this is mad yeah. and so i dragged those records from north carolina <laughs> to New York, california and back to back home to north carolina and eventually my mom was like yeah get these records out of here so you didn't need so, no weight room you had the records crazy yeah, so i had a huge collection of records and so i was really well versed in all genres of music very early on which allowed me to have longevity in this thing because a lot of people 
didn't really study the way that I studied uh, my record collection. So I was able to find a lot of stuff, which Biz taught me very early on because he was a record collector. He taught yeah. me very early on a lot of that classic rock shit was dope because a lot of the white musicians were doing their version of R&B and soul music. And so a lot of shit was funky, you know? Because the one group of persons that I know that I listened to a whole lot back in the days that used to make a lot of good um, music that I used to love listening to was like Hank Shockley. And oh, yeah. Because like when they used to, when they sat there and did the Public Enemy record and you listening to all the samples, they had like about 15 to 16 samples within one song. And you're like, what the heck? But it all worked. Yeah, yeah, they they were great arrangers and just finding so much stuff that those records were so exciting. Even Dr. Dre got into that at one time where it was so many samples coming in and out and it was just like a whole vibe, you know. And 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 I went to a studio here in LA and Shank Hock, uh, Hank Shockley was working in there and the guy turned me on to Hank Shockley's James Brown collection and it was just like crazy. So much James Brown music, you would never realize that James Brown had made this much music, but he had everything. His record collection was nuts. Like, he had everything that you could ever imagine James Brown, you know, was on, and it was just crazy. But, you know, they, they the Bomb Squad was just like the shit, man. They just had, like, a really, really dope production and really know how to put that stuff together and arrange it. Good, Rodeo. Now, I was saying, um, Fanatic, you um, emphasized that, you know, Biggie was a big influence, you know, in, in your uh-huh. own professional life and in music. If Biggie was still alive uh-huh. today, where would you uh-huh. think he would be at? Because I, I personally think he would have been a CEO. Yeah, that, his, yeah his business mind. An entertainment company. Yeah, yeah, his business mind was really, really, really uh, on point. He really knew how to find artists find superstars, find people with charisma, knew how to put the records together. You know, he really knew how to do that. And he just wanted to build something um, very early on and have a label and have artists and really mentor them because he was involved in everything from writing for the artist to producing the artist, putting the team together. He had a lot of vision with the videos and everything like that. So I just think that he would have probably went on to be a huge record executive at the same time. And he was very, uh, he spent a lot of time writing a lot. So a lot of the, um, I think he would have excelled to be like, the. we think of him as the greatest MC of all time, but I think he would have further uh, cemented that had he still been here. You know, it was just, uh, it's crazy. Like when I uh, listen to, what's going on with Kanye West and, and all this stuff that's going on now, it takes me back to, you know, this thing could easily spill into what happened between him and Tupac because like, and they didn't even have the media, social media at that time. And it could just, it just got out of hand really, really quickly. And it exploded into us losing two of the greatest MCs that we ever had. Mm-hmm. And I think about that same thing that was going on now with them. It's just like, if you let this, if you let that light that fire and let the media get a hold to it, it can really turn into something that we don't want to want to see again in music. You know. Yeah. Again, we're talking to super producer fanatic here on Nine Fifty Lounge. You know, you you mentioned something right there, um, fanatic. Obviously, we're talking a, a time pre Twitter, pre pre Instagram, uh-huh. pre Facebook. But what we see now, right, with uh-huh. these artists. 
and how it may or may not, I'm not here to read anybody's minds, but obviously there are people who beckon and, and harp on what these guys write and say. Yeah. If you can kind of play that back to what happened with Biggie and Tupac, Bad Boy, East Coast, West Coast War, and talk to a younger artist today, because we're seeing a lot of these young guys, you know, young Dolph and all these, some yeah. of these guys are having traumatic endings. What mm-hmm. would you say to a young artist that feels like they have to use that, that metaphor of, of violence in order to be successful? I mean, I don't think hip hop was created for that. You know, I don't think that that's what the forefathers of hip hop had in mind. And when we were creating that music, of course, NWA, you know, they they kind of introduced that, but they were more storytellers and telling about what was going on in their neighborhood. They weren't actually trying to act out on it. And, um, you know, it's like, it's all entertainment at the end of the day. It's just music. It's just storytelling. You aren't really supposed to live that out, that what you're talking about. You know, you're more or less like a, a commentator or a news reporter. So a lot of these artists, I would tell them, like, you know, these, this, this industry at this point is something to get you out of a uh, impoverished situation and, and change your whole life. Like hip hop has changed a lot of people. It's lot, made a lot of money for people. So we have to be very responsible and making sure that we make the right decisions when you get to that level and understand how to evolve out of your situation mentally and, and, and make the right decisions that we don't go back into those those um those situations that could uh end somebody's life or, or land us in jail and things like that so i just tell young artists to just really be smart and understand that you have a voice that is very important music is very powerful uh a lot of people don't know when you blur the lines between reality and entertainment they can't really tell so just be careful in what you're putting out there and make sure that you're responsible and understand the difference between storytelling and actually trying to live that, live it out, you know? Right. Arnold Schwarzenegger might shoot people on movies, but he ain't doing that. He ain't running ah, down Venice no. Avenue doing that. I'm gonna take a quick break. Hold on, I'm going to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk about your time with the Hitman okay. and Surviving Bad Boy, yeah. which I think is a very interesting situation yeah. to grow for Fanatic. I'll take a quick break. It's Nafi Lounge, Super Producer Fanatic. Come on back.
This is Lucy D. Sands, and I'm rocking with the best team in radio, 950 Lounge. We're back on the Ride 950 Lounge, still joined by Swift Producer Fanatic. Again, like I said, if you didn't know, you know him now, but if you didn't know, like I said, go play some of that music. You'll take, you take about five days to listen to all the stuff <laughs> that has been involved with. Um, but again, when we left off the last segment, you had the interaction with Biggie, Lil' Kim, who hated the song, became our biggest hit. Yeah. Now you 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 get involved with Bad Boy and you become part of the the Hitman. Talk about that interaction becoming part of a a super producer group at mm-hmm. one of the hottest labels of the time mm-hmm. from Greensboro to New York, yeah. making it happen. Talk about that time. Well, it's crazy. The um, I worked with uh, very early on a guy by the name of Benson Herbert found me in North Carolina and brought me to New York and introduced me. He was one of my mentors as well. And we, and, and just for our audience, Vincent Herbert, everybody mm-hmm. knows you should know him. That's Tamar Braxton's ex-husband. Right. So, and, and he found you know, Lady no, Gaga. Huh? And he yeah. found Lady Gaga. And yeah. Lady found, yes. That, yeah. That's more important, I believe, yeah. personally. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when I was working with Vincent, I got introduced to his whole family. So his whole family has been in and out of my life forever. Uh, you know, Laquan Herbert, Ramon Herbert. At the time, Ramon Herbert had just left Howard and was working for Bad Boy. And he knew me from when I was working with Vincent. And Ramon introduced me to Puffy. And I came up, I started playing music for him. And the thing that impressed Puffy as well as Vincent and everybody that I've ever worked with um, it's been, I've had a bunch of music to play for them at one time. And they, and they were just impressed with my work ethic and how much music I had. And when you're playing all these popular loops and samples and things like that, and you're putting hard, dirty drums from the SB1200 under there, and they're hearing all this stuff, it's uh, they're like blown away that somebody from the South or somebody as young as I was that knew all of these records that were big records in their life you know, records that they grew up on. Because, you know, Black music has a way of uh, being a soundtrack to our whole childhood and growing up when our parents were playing these popular records, you know, through our whole childhood. So they knew these records. So so when I'm playing all this, Puffy is blown away. He asked me to be the hitman, one of his hitman producers. At the time, Mario Winans was the other one. And some of the guys had, like, kind of peaked out. And it was really about Mario Winans and I saving the uh the label like you know they there was a big article in source magazine with me and mario and they were asking us to be they the the title was the savior of the hitman and bad boy records and uh, they're relying on mario winans and myself to do that and so um 
as we got into it and started producing records, I started learning a lot of things from Puffy from work ethic. Another, he was another mentor. So already off top, I had Vincent Herbert. I had Bismarcky as a mentor. I had Vincent Herbert as a mentor. And now Puffy's my mentor. And I'm learning how, because before I was producing records, I was doing them all by myself, everything from top to bottom. Now you're working with the Hitman team where everybody is adding on to the records. So you may start off with producing the beat. Mario Winans might come in and add keys to it. Somebody else might come in and add a vocal hook on it. So it was like a factory of all of these talented people constantly adding on to the records. And so when you hear the finished product, it's, 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 it's larger than life. You know, it's radio. It's, it's, it's everything that you never even envisioned because I'm coming in with just the rawness of it. And they're adding it and, and cleaning it up and making it into this big production. It's this big record. A music conveyor belt of sorts. Yeah, and that's, that's the first time I've ever done that. And so I learned at that point about teamwork and putting the team together to add different elements to the record to make it, you know, a hit record. And when you do that, you're bringing five or six minds in on this one record. So everybody's bringing something to right. the table with this record that's making it this, this beautiful uh, finished product. How so, was your... How was your relationship with Mario? Because again, you just said this is something new. So yeah. just like it's just like telling um LeBron now he's got to play with five you know guys that want to. It was it was great because I respected him because of his family where he came from. Mario was just uh, when I got there, he embraced me all right off top and was telling me how to uh, establish rapport, further rapport with Puffy, how they work around there. Uh, you know, just uh, and then when I came into the studio with him, we just spoke the same language musically. So when I would have him come in and add on to what I was doing, he knew exactly what sounds to get. And he just really polished on, on his production and just really made my records come to life. So I, I used him a lot to co-produce records with me and to, to add uh, other instruments and music to what I was doing. Right. That's, and that's, so I was I was I was open to all of that because my music sounding better, you know. Yeah. But at the time, Puffy, when I really got in there, he kept trying to get me to sign the contract and I kept putting it off because uh, I wanted to feel it out. Here it goes. <laughs> so, so so I kept delaying it and you know, he always would ask me to hang out at the studio all the time. And I, I didn't do that on purpose because I knew every time I saw him he was going to put the pressure on me to sign the contract. And I really wanted to make sure this was like the right thing to do at this right. time. I wanted to see how committed he was because before that bad boy was on every remix that was out there. If it right. was a remix, bad boy was on it. I've been in parties where they would play bad boy records for like two hours straight, just dropping one after another. So I wanted to make sure that same commitment was going to happen again with my career. And unfortunately, the incident with the New York uh, City shooting with Shine and Jennifer Lopez happened. Mm. And when all of that happened, the focus immediately shifted because his life was on the line. So he was never around after that. So uh, very, very rarely was he around. So at that time, I figured, like, this probably isn't the right move for me because he's not here to, you know, give me the attention that I need. And he's focused on that. And I understood that. So he just, uh, we had a talk and I had a conversation with him and I said to him, um, a lot of the producers over here 
they they burn out, you know, because they're working so much and they burn out, and then they're just left on the on the sideline trying to figure it out. And I uh, wanted to learn about being an executive, an executive producer. I wanted to learn other facets of the um, of the game, so that if I ever burnt out as a producer, I could go on to be an A and R. I could go on to be an executive and whatnot. And when I had that conversation with him, I told him I was looking more for somebody to help me make that transition or learn that at the same time. And he said, well, that's not what we're really here to do. He said, I just, I just want to manage you. And I was just like, well, I was like, maybe this is not the right fit for me. And he was like, well, you're betting against the, the best, the biggest management team in the world right now. And I was like, yeah, but you know, I, I'm looking for more longevity because uh, trends change, things happen, producers burn out. And I want to make sure I have a career after after this, because if I dedicate all this time to this, this music, I want this to be you can't work in the music. And I see this happen with so many people where they've worked for 20 years in the music business and sailed to the highest heights. And then all of a sudden there's a shift and they're no longer in the game and nowhere to go. And I didn't want that to happen to me. So we ended up parting ways. Let's sit there for a second. Now, again, obviously, you know, you got a guy with, with Puffy, you know, always the contract. You know, you're doing great music, Grammy-type music. Did you feel like, hey, you know what? He's not trying to advance me professionally or even assist me. Do you take it personal, or was it just, you know what, it's business? I well, I knew it. that with the shooting, that was that was all he was thinking about at that time. So. You know, I understood that, and I knew that the commitment wasn't there. So I was like, I just tried to hang around long enough to get some records off. So I ended up doing the record with Mace, um, uh, Get Ready with Blackstreet. I ended up doing, and he gave me that record and told me, because I I gave him the beat, and he was like, we're going to make this the first single. So I think that was his way of showing me, like, yo, I'm still here, but he really wasn't. So at the end of the day, I understood what he was going through. So I never took it personal right i just knew like yo always keep that relationship always appreciate the time and the information that he gave and the next time i saw him he was like what's going on playboy i was like um i just got back from miami i just finished and hold hold that thought he was like we know who he was working with then i'm a i'm a i'm a softball ad now now you need bad boy right okay some might say you was crazy but you had a vision. You had a long-term goal. You go I thought that. to South Beach and go rock with right. maybe the greatest entertainer of our time. Rest in peace, Michael Definitely. Jackson. Talk about how that mm-hmm. association happened, how you worked with Michael, and your interaction with Michael. Being with Diddy right. during the time where he was going through legal issues, you really didn't have interaction with that one-on-one that guidance. How was it different with Michael, or was it different with Michael? Well, the thing about the Michael Jackson situation is we had, um, I have worked with Terrence Thompson and Nate Smith, and I had this record um, that we had put together. They had put it together, and then I was just like, let me find the right songwriter for this record, because this sounds like it could be some Michael Jackson shit. It was just like, it reminded me of Lady in My Life. So I went and got Teron Beale, who um, is this incredible writer, and I had worked with him before, and he knew all of the nuances of Michael Jackson, like, to a T. And so I got him the record. They wrote the song. Him and Richard Law, uh, Laws wrote the song. 
And it just like blew me away. I was like, oh, this is this is definitely Michael Jackson. So, so of course, you don't think you can get to Michael Jackson. So you try to pitch it to Janet Jackson. And then <laughs> Lady of Virgins is like, not Janet, Reby, huh? You know, Tito, Tito would have took it from you. You know, Tito would have took it. So I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I even tried to get get it to Latoya Jackson. I was like, this is a Jackson record. So uh, I was trying to get it to any one of them. So so then. Randy, come over here, Randy. I got a song for you. I was trying to resurrect Reby Jackson. Anybody, any Jackson, I was like, this is a Jackson record. So Samuel Jackson, to, uh, Babyface's brother Kavon Edmonds, mm, because right. um, we got this crazy check for the record, and I was just like, you know, you can't really turn down this money. You got to do this record, and so um, so we got in the studio with him, and he came out the booth, and he was like, yo, you guys are trying to make me sound like Michael Jackson. You just need to go get Michael Jackson if that's if that's the case. Now he was joking. But the light bulb went off in my head, and I was like, you know what? He's right. He's like, this is Michael. Nobody could do this record but Michael Jackson. So then I started playing Six Degrees of Separation. And I was like, who do I know that knows Michael Jackson, right? And it just dawned on me, this guy named Kenny Quiller that I know from North Carolina happened to be Teddy Riley's assistant, and Teddy Riley was working on Michael Jackson. Right. So I get him the record. He plays it for Teddy. I get a call like a week later and they tell me to come to Miami. Um, we're going to cut the record on Michael Jackson. He loves the record. Mm. And I was mm. like, what? I, I'm not believing this. Mm. So Incredible. next thing you know, I'm standing in front of Ted, uh, Michael Jackson. He's like this close to my face, having a conversation <laughs> with me about the record. And a lot of people meet Michael Jackson. They shake their hand and, you know, they keep it moving, but he's actually having a conversation with you. And he's like looking you directly in your eyes when he's talking to you. And so, like I said uh, previously, like halfway through the conversation, he sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher, and I'm not hearing anything he's saying. I burst out in this big, big smile, and I know Mike was like, "Where is this nigga looking at me like this? But why is he smiling like this?" And it just dawned on me, like I grew up listening to this guy. I seen the cartoon. I seen him go from the Jacksons to Off the Wall to Thriller. So it just dawned on me that, like, yo, I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina, and the guy Michael Jackson is standing in front of me. It done come full circle. Conversation. Yeah. And so it just blew me away, and it was just a very surreal moment. He has this aura about him that you feel it when he's in the room. You know Um, what? You sound like you sound like Charlie Murphy. You go, he's like that prince, you know that aura. He coming around. I'm like, yo, when he was there, it just felt like he was not of this earth. And then when you hear his conversation and the sincerity in his conversation, it's like, right. you know, this dude is not from here. Something is is this energy in the room. It's like when he came in, he just brought it with him. And when he left, it just left the room. And it, just like, it just felt really, really, really crazy. And just to see how humble and sincere and professional he was, like you saw a side of him that not a lot of people get to see. Yeah. And I remember I was just watching the Janet documentary and when Michael and Janet were sitting at the at the at the bed and writing um the scream record, it just brought me back to how humble and sincere he was and how focused he was. And it was a very it, it was a very emotional moment watching that because I experienced something very similar to that when he was in the studio. And I was just like, 
yo, people just didn't get it. They didn't understand him and what he was really here to do. And we should have we should have protected him because he was definitely not of this earth in a very uh, true gift that, that God gave us when he gave us Michael Jackson. He affected all of us. Yeah. For our whole entire life. Yeah, so, Hold some, on, some, some, let, let, let me now, let me get let me get backstage I, and go ahead. Yeah, because I wanted to ask now, when you was working with Michael, was he is it was he like very meticulous within how he has the music arranged and everything else and and how things blend in and stuff like that, like how they say he is? Nah, the thing with him at this time because you got to realize this was the last record Michael Jackson actually came to studio and recorded vocals on everything else was like everything after that were like uh master tapes and they were taking his vocals and putting new music in it so this is the first this is the last time he had been in there in the studio and it was probably like a 10-year period between when he was actually working on an album so he hadn't been in there in a while so when he came in he worked with his vocal coach for like two hours doing vocal exercises in the back and this is a guy that he had worked with forever i think it was seth riggs i believe but they had been working. They warmed up for like two hours doing vocal exercises. And then he came in and sang like 30 minutes and then broke out. So, and he was like, you know, I apologize. I'll be back tomorrow to finish it. Uh, I just want to make sure that I do the uh, demo justice. So he was just, uh, and, and he let he let us sing backgrounds on the record. That was like the first time I can recall that he didn't sing his own backgrounds on the record. And so, um it was a different Michael at that time. And um, I personally don't think his work ethic was as strong as it had been in the past in the time that he spent in the studio. You know, but at that time he had kids, he had other stuff going on in his life. So I don't think the focus was the same as Thriller or Off the Wall as it was when he got to this album. But um, he did, he was very professional and he did spend a lot of time making sure that the vocals were right when he did lay them down. Mm. Good rodeo. I know you got something. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. Um, some celebrities you meet, you will be starstruck. Michael Jackson. If you meet Michael Jackson, you're gonna be starstruck. If you meet Prince, you're right. gonna be starstruck. Now, if you meet, you know, um, somebody that's you know like a big celebrity, you know, you'd be like, hey, how you doing? But some celebrities have that effect. Um, I know somebody that met Whitney Houston, and they just, they didn't know their name because it's it's yeah. not that what they do. Right. But when you watch somebody grow up from day one to to mm-hmm. a young adult, and then you in the same room, that's right. that's 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 a childhood dream. And then you right. call, like, yo, I, you know, I'm I'm with Michael. They first thing gonna ask you, yo, he, he yo, he got bubbles with him. Well, no, nah, he ain't got no bubbles when we're in the studio. But the thing is that because of what Michael did at a young age, I think five or six years old to an adult, you know, that's, right. you know, you, you have, you probably have stories that probably you just will keep to yourself because, you know, that's what you and, and Mike Mayer shared some personal right. things. But, you know, but the thing is that some celebrities you meet, you definitely are going to be starstruck. I don't right. care. You want me starstruck? It's like you. And that you- was probably like the first time for me um, in that moment where it hit me like that. And what's what's crazy is like my whole career. You know, when you're in New York City, you run into all of these artists just out on the street, everywhere. You just run into them, club, whatever. So one thing that I a mistake that I made early in my career is I would always see these people. 
And I would always be like, you know, not starstruck. And I would see them and I would always be like, oh, I see them again because, you know, you're always thinking that you're going, your, your career is going and you're moving right. up and you're going to constantly run into these people. But sometimes you don't. So um, one thing that I tell a lot of people is always seize the moment because you never know if you're going to see those people again. You never know what could happen to those people that you may not ever get to work with them again. Mm-hmm. So one thing I always did after that is make sure that I was prepared with the conversation. If I see so-and-so, this is the conversation I'm going to have with them. I used to write it in my phone and put it in my drafts and be like, yo, if you see Russell Simmons, this is the conversation you're going to have with them. You know, if you see Kanye, this is the conversation you're going to have with them. Because establishing rapport with these people is it's very tricky. Because yeah. they got people that all, all the time. So you have to make sure that you say the right thing that allows them to, well, you know, they're, they're very, uh, they're, they're push you away if you don't really say the right thing and they they put you in a certain category whether they think you're a groupie or whether you know you're unprofessional or whatever so you got to make sure that you have the right conversation to establish rapport these people to continue the dialogue you want to leave a lasting um question with them you want to leave something they lay on it like yo you know what that Mm -hmm. guy fanatic did say that to me and then that intrigues them to want to talk to you even more and that's how you start to build relationship and friendship. And a lot of time, the people that you may not know a year ago could be a year late, could be one of your best friends. But you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. By that. Yeah. Rapport building is an art. We'll leave it at yeah. that. I'm going to take a quick break. Yeah, and, and you got, and with, with that, you got to be very, uh, it's something that you have to do on a regular basis because if you don't do it, like if you're not going out and getting in the mix with them, it's hard to get that that confidence and that energy up where you could just fit in front of them and yeah. just pull them in. And so yeah. it, it's an art and it's something that you have to constantly do to stay, uh, you know, I, it's almost like staying in shape and being able to spit that conversation. And you start figuring out what works and whatnot. And so you build your, your repertoire of how to approach celebrities and, and, and recording arts. Well said. I'm going to take a quick break. We've been talking about things you've done. I want to talk about what you're doing now and what's in the future for okay. Fanatic. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about what's next for Fanatic. Mm-hmm. Nafi yeah. Lounge, where else you want to be? Come on back. 